Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some well less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hold up! What was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome, history, friends, patrons all, to episode 11 of The Korean War. Last time we brought our narrative up to the end of 1949, from the perspective of Sino-American relations, and we learned that the American policy towards China, that of the Great Wedge, and of holding out on diplomatic recognition of the People's Republic of China, simply was not working. The shock truly came when Mao Zedong appeared in Moscow in early December 1949, and for the next few weeks, Washington scrambled to formulate a response, one which would claw back the diplomatic initiative and somehow, some way, 
keep Moscow apart from Beijing. Would the Secretary of State Dean Acheson and President Truman succeed? Let's find out as I take you to late December 1949, where a significant phase of foreign policy formation was underway in Washington. The Song of the Week this week is brought to you by Studio. Studio are stylish, super good quality earphones that you need in your life right now. I have a pair of them myself and I use them very, very regularly to edit the podcast episodes. If you think, ooh, Zach's stuff sounds fairly good quality. I mean, I don't hear him breathing or I don't hear him making awful mouth noises in the background. That's because Studio has helped me to isolate the worst of these sounds and eliminate them so that the listening process is more pleasurable. But of course, you do not have to use them for editing. You can use them for listening to anything you like. That's the beauty of them. (laughs) But the beauty of them is actually found in the fact that they look pretty darn good. And they're trying to make headphones stylish again. Maybe not make them stylish again, but make them stylish full stop. And the good news is, if you want to participate in this new trend, because... Believe me, pretty soon it will be trendy, knowing how trends work these days. And I don't know how trends work these days, but I do know that Studio make good earphones. And I think that you too will find reason to enjoy them. Whether you want those over-the-head ones that make you look like you're doing something really serious, you know, those really trendy ones that kind of look like earmuffs, or you want the ones, the kind of earbud ones that just fit into your ears, Studio have got you covered. Go to studio.com and use the code WDF to get 15% off your purchase That again is studio.com and the code again is WDF. So the song this week is Smoky Mountain Blues, a song by Sylvester Wallace released in 1939. Enjoy it, guys, and we'll be back with episode 11 of The Korean War. As turning points go, December 1949 was the month of turning points for virtually all the powers involved in the coming Korean War conflict. For Joseph Stalin, his interpretation of Mao Zedong's cable back home to Beijing meant that his plan to damage Western relations with China 
and to reduce the Chinese to dependence upon Moscow was in immense jeopardy. In response, Stalin sought to create a wedge, which could be driven between the Chinese and the West, sort of like what the West had been trying to do between the Chinese and the Soviets, and Stalin believed that he had found it in Korea. Because a Korean War would force the United States to intervene through the auspices of the United Nations, which would further aggravate Western relations with all communist regimes, prevent Mao from finishing his conquest of Taiwan, and also place Mao in a dire strategic situation where he would feel pressured into intervening in Korea to prevent the establishment of a Western Korean satellite on his doorstep. So it was that by seeking to reinforce his Asian position, Stalin placed the Soviet Union, the Chinese, the Korean Peninsula, and the rest of the world on the path to war. Yet at this moment in late December 1949, Mao Zedong was far from aware of Stalin's ulterior motives, and by this point was instead eagerly awaiting the opportunity to make a new set of deals with the Soviet Union. It was while Stalin properly laid the groundwork for the campaign in Korea over the next few weeks that Mao, for all intents and purposes, was ignored. This cold shoulder campaign wasn't necessarily deliberate, but it did have the effect of making Mao more amenable to Soviet interests. By the time Stalin did agree to meet Mao's demands, it looked to the Chinese leader as though he had gained satisfaction by keeping the pressure applied, when in actual fact, Mao continued to walk unknowingly right into Stalin's trap. In past episodes, we have dealt with this idea that Stalin wished to use Korea to drive the Americans and Chinese apart and to ensure that Mao became more dependent on the USSR as a result. Yet, what we haven't looked at was the American response to Mao's aforementioned cable home to Beijing on the 19th of December 1949, which the United States likely intercepted nor have we completed our examination of how American foreign policy reacted to the course of events in December 1949, which so shocked Dean Acheson and his colleagues into scrambling a last-ditch response to the People's Republic of China that would hopefully keep it apart from Moscow. For different reasons, Mao Zedong and his People's Republic were the keys to both American and Soviet security, and in different ways, both Dean Acheson and Joseph Stalin sought to bring the torn Chinese leader to one side or the other. In this episode, we'll see the steps which led Mao to ultimately choose the Soviet Union, what the Americans continued to try in response, and how all these steps would lead eventually to the Korean War. NSC 48 was the US National Security Council's developing paper on strategy for the containment of communism and the protection of American interests in Asia. First developed on the insistence of the Secretary of Defense, a Mr. Lewis Johnson, in July 1949, the study was further developed in response to the rapidly changing balance of power in China and the prospects it suggested for both American and Western security. By late December 1949, we imagine that the margins of the study, NSC 48, was filled with notes, observations and urgent recommendations as the Communist Party of China expelled the Chinese Republicans to the island of Taiwan, the Soviet Union detonated a nuclear bomb and Mao Zedong appeared in Moscow. In the event, these successive shocks to American assumptions destroyed what had once seemed like a watertight strategy laid down in another NSC report called 
20-4. NSC 20-4 was different to NSC 48, and it was written up in late November 1948, when the American position was apparently secure, as the Republican victory in the Chinese Civil War was far from a lost cause. Mezidong was far from in a position of friendship with Stalin, and the Soviet Union had no nuclear capabilities. So NSC 48, in other words, had been developed to react to the now outdated policies put forward by NSC 20-4, which had been written up in late November 1948. Hopefully you understand, I know there's a lot of letters and numbers floating around, but basically NSC 20-4 was made obsolete by NSC 48, and NSC 68 is the one that we'll talk about later on that has loads of implications for the Korean War, but you don't need to worry about that for the moment. For the moment, just remember NSC 48. So underpinning NSC 48 by late December 1949 was a striking offer which Acheson intended to make to Mao. In return for an arranged Sino-Japanese economic and strategic partnership which would be left neutral if desired, but which could be tied to the United States at the same time, Mao would decline an alliance with Moscow and place China instead in the orbit of a third party which would be independent from the Soviet influence. As a further incentive, Acheson planned to give up US support of Taiwan's republican regime in return for Mao's final pledge to enter this arrangement. With the Taiwan issue absent after the predicted communist seizure of that island, tensions between Washington and Beijing would surely evaporate as a traditional cause for Western hostility towards Mao's regime would no longer stand in the way. This was what Acheson hoped for, and he envisioned a blooming of amicable, ultimately highly useful relations between China and the United States, which could be used to counterbalance the Soviet Union and give an independent face to communism in Asia. Washington, as we've seen, couldn't bring itself to believe that Mao would be anything other than a Chinese Tito, since the idea of a Chinese subservience to Moscow appeared anathema to Mao Zedong's character and to the nationalistic brand of Chinese communism which he espoused. In line with these predictions and assumptions, and in response to Mao's appearance in Moscow and the danger that this suggested to American foreign policy interests, Acheson tried to work quickly. Unfortunately for him, though, he was undermined by people in his own government, who proved unwilling to accept that a new order had passed. Opposition showed itself relatively quickly as the first paper, the aforementioned NSC 48, noted as Dash 1 because it was the first draft of it, was released to the government on the 23rd of December 49, and underlined what should be the American approach to Asia going forward. Taiwan would effectively be abandoned, Japan would be offered as a place for China to do business and pool resources with, and American recognition for the People's Republic would be forthcoming. NSC 48-1, in other words, was a stark and deliberate effort to make a bid for Chinese friendship through the effective surrender of old American policy. By cutting the Taiwanese knot, Acheson hoped that this would signal to Beijing that a new initiative was underway in America, and he hoped, of course, that Mao would rush to take advantage. Yet, as I alluded to a few minutes ago, Acheson's report never actually reached Mao's inner circle because almost immediately after it was published, among the different American statesmen of the upper circle of American leadership that is, it came under harsh criticism from the Secretary of Defence, Lewis Johnson. Johnson was outraged that Acheson could so openly insist on an abandonment of Taiwan, 
And it helps to remember Lewis Johnson as something of a Taiwan fanboy during this stage. The traditional support of Chiang Kai-shek, which had been the cornerstone of U.S. foreign policy in China since the beginning of the Second World War, was something that Lewis Johnson did not want to abandon. Johnson was also concerned about the concessions which could be made for the Japanese situation, but Truman supported Acheson, and the president actually sent the Secretary of Defense on a holiday for the Christmas period to get him out of the way. Lewis Johnson's opposition did force a reconsideration of the report, though, and thus a week later, for the sake of confusing all of us, NSC 48-2, in other words, Draft 2, was born. NSC 48-2 was released in top-secret channels to the Truman administration on the 30th of December, and it represents a symbolic changing of the guard in the literally final days of 1949. The new report did take some of Johnson's objections into consideration, in particular by tightening US control over Japan, by kicking the can down the road somewhat, where any question of a Sino-Japanese partnership independent of American influence was concerned, citing the unsigned final peace treaty deliberations in Japan as the real reason for the delay in all this. In a big way though, almost as a nod to Johnson, NSC 48-2 was notably more anti-communist than its predecessor of a week before, whereas NSC 48-1 sought to direct, as it put it, the potential powers of Asian countries into constructive channels and to contain and, where feasible, to reduce the power and influence of the USSR. NSC 48-2 emphasised the development of sufficient military power in selected non-communist nations, to prevent further encroachment by communism. Furthermore, NSC 48-2 explained the need for the gradual reduction and eventual elimination of the preponderant power and influence of the USSR. While it appeared more hardline, though, NSC 48-2 maintained that old carrot for Mao Zedong and insisted that Washington would not intervene militarily to save the Republic of China, which helped to keep open the possibility that, in return for such a declaration, Mao would foster a break with Moscow and keep the People's Republic of China independent of the Soviet Union. If these predictions and hopes on Acheson's part were naive, then he only very slowly and reluctantly abandoned them. What's more, naive as they may seem in retrospect, considering how history actually developed from late 1949, the very prospect that America and China would cement a mutually beneficial deal by essentially taking Taiwan off the table was enough to get Stalin's ball rolling. If we consider for a moment the extent of Stalin's spy network in the United States and the fact that he had definitely cracked Chinese codes, which kept him well informed of both American and Chinese foreign policy developments, then it stands to reason that Stalin believed, after learning of NSC 48-2, that his aim of driving a wedge between the Chinese and Americans was in real jeopardy. Judging from these communications, judging from the extent that NSC 48-2 was developed, in Stalin's mind, he could have well believed that the major obstacle to Sino-American relations, in the form of Taiwan, had been totally removed, because that's what NSC 48-2 suggested would be the best American foreign policy going forward. Following on from these successive threats to his own policy line, Stalin created a new crisis of his own which would force America to react, 
when he had an interview between a journalist and Mao Zedong published on the 2nd of January 1950. In the course of that interview, Mao declared his intentions to deal with Sino-Soviet problems in the course of his stay in the Soviet Union and to develop deals for a loan and a trade pact. We saw last time that this really spooked Acheson and made him feel as though all of his plans had gone up in smoke. Stalin also had an ulterior motive for doing this though, because he believed that by making Mao put his plans out in the open, this would make the United States publish its policy towards China too, and then Stalin believed he could set the next phase of his plan into motion, which we'll examine in a bit. Washington famously took the bait, and on the 5th of January 1950, the American intention to refrain from protecting Taiwan from any invasion on the part of the PRC was made public in a speech by President Truman. It was later on, in the day of the 5th of January 1950, that Acheson made a speech during a White House press conference, in which he clarified the President's position. The United States, Acheson said, has no desire to obtain special rights or privileges or to establish military bases on Taiwan at this time. The sentence here was typical of Acheson, and those in attendance immediately jumped on those three critical words that ended the sentence, at this time, to which Acheson handily intimated that much would depend on the decision of Mao. If the Chinese leader sided with the United States, then Taiwan was his for the taking, as Washington wouldn't feel its interests in Asia threatened. Yet, if Mao did not side with America, then for the sake of its position in Asia, there could be no guarantee that in the future a greater American military involvement in Taiwan would not follow. This was a carrot-and-stick approach designed to keep pressure on Mao Zedong while he was in enemy territory. Yet Stalin seems to have seen it coming, for his next move indicated more than any other up to this point what his true motives for the People's Republic of China were. Stalin appreciated that the best chance he had for increasing Chinese dependence upon Moscow was to create a situation whereby the People's Republic had as few friends as possible in the West. For this to happen, Stalin would have to ensure that the US-led group of nations in the United Nations were as united as possible. Far better it would be to alienate China from a large block of states than from merely the Americans, but the question was how to formulate such an alienation. Stalin believed that the UN would grant the West the best chance to unite against the perceived aggression of the North Koreans, and that the eventual involvement of the People's Republic of China in the conflict would further aggravate the sense of anger towards the Chinese. For such a united groundswell of criticism to be levelled at Mao Zedong's policy decisions, Stalin knew that there could be no opposing voice which may cast doubt over the proceedings, even if this voice was that of the Soviet representative. He would have to go if he stood in the way of Stalin's overall plan to launch China and the West on a collision course and isolate Mao's regime in the process. Thus, we come to the apparently bizarre decision of the Russian representative in the UN Security Council, Jacob Malik, to walk out of the UN's entire apparatus, taking all Soviet staff with him. Ostensibly, this was dressed up, this walkout was kind of disguised as a protest against the UN Security Council and the seat which the Republic of China still held on that five-man permanent institution. Stalin went to great lengths to make the walkout appear as authentic as possible, 
dressing the event up as one of Soviet distaste towards the Western ignorance of the true political situation in China. Stalin could claim that he was merely standing up for Comrade Mao and countless historians since have taken it as gospel that Stalin ordered a complete walkout of the UN on the 13th of January 1950, even while they also tacitly acknowledged that, in light of the fact that Stalin was planning the war in Korea by this point, this doesn't make very much sense. The only way it does make sense is to see the conflict in Korea in the context of Stalin's wider ambitions in both Asia and for the Sino-Soviet relationship. By removing the Soviet veto, Stalin was paving the way for a far more united condemnation of Chinese actions than there would otherwise have been. By his subsequent actions in engineering the Korean War, he guaranteed that such condemnation would be forthcoming. In the following clip, since I know you guys have been starved of authentic historical clips for a while, we hear of the Soviet Union walking out on the UN Security Council, with their satellites trailing behind them, as the broadcaster put it. The Chinese nationalists are still sitting tight in the United Nations, and the Russians are still walking out. It happened again today. The executive board of the International Children's Emergency Fund convened. The nationalists showed up. So did the Russians. The Russians took one look at the nationalists and then out they went with the satellite delegations trailing behind them. And that's all of the news as of now. Stalin's lies weren't just for Western ears. Demonstrating his laser focus on the sole objective of alienating the Chinese and forcing them into a relationship of dependence upon the Soviet Union, Stalin even made a great show of presenting the act as one of defiance to Mao Zedong. And Stalin was able to coordinate a walkout of the UN with the stinging critique that Mao sent to the UNHQ in New York, making the event appear as legitimate as possible. On the surface, Stalin presented the act as one which was made in anger of the situation in the Security Council, and which was designed at pressuring the Chinese Republican representative to give up his seat for the communist Chinese peer. Such an eventuality was impossible, as Stalin well knew, since the UN Security Council was one of the few advantages perhaps the only advantage over the People's Republic of China that Chiang Kai-shek's regime still held. Thus, the Soviets made some symbolic protests once their request and pressure was ignored, even giving the impression that they had been diplomatically defeated and giving nobody any reason to think differently. Far from defeated, Stalin was able to observe that everything was going according to plan. Now that the UN, the Americans and Mao Zedong had been caught in the trap, it remained to prepare for war in Korea, and to gradually bring Mao around to that eventuality. Back in Washington, meanwhile, Dean Acheson's efforts continued. When noting the steps towards the Korean War, Dean Acheson's speech to the National Press Club on the 12th of January 1950 is often referenced as giving the green light to the North Koreans, Soviets and other aggressors to invade South Korea. Yet the truth surrounding both the implications for Acheson's speech and the circumstances in which it was performed were far more complex. In fact, the opening of Soviet archives in the 1980s has revealed that Acheson's speech had far less significance and influence on events than was initially assumed. But since old assumptions die hard, I feel it'd do no harm to investigate what actually happened on the 12th of January 1950, what Acheson actually said and how it was relevant to the Korean War, which came after. 
One of the first things we need to address is why an element of confusion reigns at all over what Atchison actually said. Many historians have taken it as fact that Atchison abandoned Korea in the course of this speech, that he committed to a limited defence of the Pacific, and for all intents and purposes, declared a withdrawal of American interests in Asia. Yet Atchison didn't say such things at all. His goal was to float a trial balloon in Mao's direction by using the excuse that he was speaking off the cuff and thus could not provide a script to the media organs present. Without a script to print, these newspapers would have to follow along with what Atchison said, and Atchison made the quite reasonable assumption that several different interpretations of his speech would be recorded, depending on the pre-existing bias of the reporter present. Remember where we are at this point in American foreign policy. We've just covered the different NSC policy papers, above all NSC 48-1 and 2, and we've seen how that policy paper was circulated throughout the upper echelons of American leadership. It so spooked Stalin that he set off on his own little miniature mission which would soon explode, but in America it had yet to really be publicised to the world effectively. In other words, the central message of NSC 48, that America would abandon Taiwan if Mao Zedong would make a sweet deal with the Americans, had yet to be publicised. And Atchison knew that if he just went out and said this, it would cause a wee bit of controversy, so he attempted to use this speech at the National Press Club to kind of find a way around this. Let's see how he did it. Contrary to the consensus, when it came to the subject of South Korea, Atchison said, We have taken great steps which have ended our military occupation and in cooperation with the UN have established an independent and sovereign country recognised by nearly all the rest of the world. We have given that nation great help. We are asking Congress to continue that help. The idea that we would scrap all that, that we should stop halfway through the achievement of the establishment of this country of South Korea seems to me to be the most utter defeatism and utter madness in our interests in Asia. What Atchison did pointedly avoid, you may notice, was any direct mention of Taiwan, unless asked, yet he did imply that the Republicans had lost the war and he heavily criticised the Soviet policy in Asia, which was, as he understood it, the detaching of pieces of northern China and their reattachment to the Soviet Union. Atchison was adamant that, Nothing we say or do must be allowed to obscure the reality of this fact. However, in the subsequent reports of Atchison's speech to the National Press Club, the main takeaway seemed to be, in South Korean President Syngman Rhee's mind at least, that Washington had abandoned South Korea to its fate. As we have learned, Atchison's goal with this speech had been to reach out to the Chinese, and the reason he had spoken ad lib or presented his speech as such was because he wanted to benefit from the different interpretations that the media would print. Atchison's assumption that different reporters would hear and write different versions of his speech proved correct. The New York Times reported that Atchison had big plans for defending Taiwan and had neglected South Korea, both of which were totally incorrect. Far from neglecting South Korea, Atchison had in fact neglected Taiwan, as the aim had been all along if the trial balloon to the Chinese was to be successful. As I touched on earlier, if Atchison was to proclaim a direct public abandonment of Taiwan or its exclusion from America's Pacific defence rim, then this would have been quite contentious in the mood of the day, and it was also risky for Atchison's career if such an approach failed. 
Acheson relied upon, and he may even have prodded certain reporters towards printing a given version of the speech, since the absence of Chiang Kai-shek from the US defense perimeter was covered by the Washington Post, interestingly, but not the New York Times. The Washington Post's account was that essential trial balloon to lure Mao Zedong into American negotiations. Yet if anything changed after this presentation, then Acheson could very easily spurn any response to the Washington Post article by just arguing that the reporter on the scene had misheard and misreported what had been said. Hopefully you kind of understand what's going on here. I know it's a bit tricky to wrap your head around everything that's happening, but... Basically, Acheson was devising a plan here to present several hooks to the listening Chinese because he knew that they were listening, even if they didn't necessarily say that they were. And also, by presenting these hooks, he could cover himself up if anything failed. It was quite a clever way to manipulate the media, it has to be said, by creating several different brands of fake news, but it also had consequences. While Acheson expected errors in reporting, some that followed must have made him wince. The New York Times, for example, spent a good deal of time emphasising the American commitment to Taiwan, which, you'll recall, Acheson never even mentioned during the course of his speech. Yet, if Acheson sought to correct the article, then one might ask later on why he corrected one report and none of the others. One could, of course, argue that Acheson was sending mixed signals here, yet the Secretary also had the text of what he had said, due by the 23rd of January and he could provide this to the Chinese if all else failed. The man we can thank, then, for the popular interpretation of Acheson's speech is a guy called Walter Wagoner, and he's the reporter who was present during Acheson's speech and who had it published in the New York Times. It was this published report in the New York Times which the South Korean government paid attention to, in the same way that the reading American public would have, yet Wagoner's report seemed to completely distort Acheson's words, attributing and removing phrases and commitments which never left Acheson's mouth. Where Acheson avoided really mentioning much about Taiwan, Wagoner claimed that Ireland would play a significant role in American security. Wagoner also completely left out any mention of Korea or of the use of any Sino-Japanese cooperative. Wagoner made the now infamous note that US defence perimeter in Asia stretched from the Ryukus or Okinawa to the Philippines, which pointedly left out the other aspects of the defensive belt that included Japan and South Korea. The result of this misreporting was to warp Acheson's speech to an unimaginable degree and to emphasise points which the Secretary of State had avoided while omitting topics that he had deliberately underlined. For a variety of reasons, though, Wagner's interpretation became the supposed actual version of the speech and Acheson's original remarks were completely forgotten. In the end, all of this messing around was needless, because two days after this press meeting on the 14th of January 1950, the Chinese communists invaded the consular offices of the marine barracks in Beijing and evicted the staff there, which created a diplomatic storm that was emblazoned on the front page of the New York Times, which of course only added to the tensions that had been building in the headlines of that paper before. In Acheson's mind, the cover provided by the inconsistent media reports was now a kind of blessing for his career. Now he couldn't be accused of attempting to court the People's Republic of China after that same power had just demonstrated such a flagrant disregard for American rights 
again, and thanks to the disinterest in the affair by the 23rd of January, he never really would be. Instead, he would be accused of something far worse by posterity. Acheson would be cast by many historians of the Korean War as the bumbling fool who mistakenly gave the green light for the Korean War. This despite the fact that, of course, Acheson had included South Korea within his defence perimeter, and he had described the notion that Washington would leave South Korea as utter defeatism and utter madness, if you'll recall. But such was the consequences of his ad-lib strategy that these things just slipped through the cracks. This idea and the image it creates of Acheson in the context of the Korean War is a subject we'll return to in later episodes when we examine my thesis in more detail. To add to the idea that Acheson was seeking to covertly court the Chinese leader, it is worth noting that the Secretary of State had arranged to disclose the supposedly new evidence which demonstrated that Chiang Kai-shek had never been anything more than a short-term investment in America's Chinese policy. This evidence, which were merely observations published by Vice President Henry Wallace during his trip to China in 1944, could be used to discredit the Republican regime holding out on Taiwan, and to intimate that America couldn't possibly continue to support such a regime which was never really meant to last. Through such evidence, the case for leaving Taiwan to its fate would seem more sensible and perhaps less dishonourable when the American public considered their government's foreign commitments. If the Republic of China was poorly led and effectively doomed from the start, what choice did Washington have but to leave it to its fate? Atchison didn't invent Henry Wallace's observations, but the publication of them was deliberately timey. In the process, he had sent a plethora of messages to Mao Zedong, ranging from the emphasis on American disinterest in Taiwan to the consistent commitment of America to South Korea, to the economic cooperation with Japan that could be possible, to the heavy critiques of Soviet annexations of Chinese land. Mao Zedong would have to respond to these signals, yet because he was not in proper diplomatic contact with the Americans, this public sphere was the only reliable channel to gain information. If Mao was mostly dependent upon the American press for news, and if Acheson knew this, then I find it odd that the Secretary of State would deliberately try to send mixed messages to the Chinese leader. Surely Acheson would want Mao to know that he was willing to give Taiwan up, that he wanted to foster greater Asian cooperation, and that he believed the Soviet Union was merely the latest face of Russian imperialism in Asia. In this context, it seems likely that Acheson disclosed Henry Wallace's commitments to the New York Times in a bid to reduce the impact of Walter Wagoner's report, which seemed to insist that the Americans would fight enthusiastically to retain Taiwan. If Acheson couldn't force Wagoner to change his interpretation, then he could at least signal the American lack of faith in Chiang Kai-shek's regime, suggesting in the process that Washington did not expect Taiwan's beleaguered Republican remnants to be too long for this world, and perhaps in the process, giving Mao the impression that the Americans wouldn't intervene if, well, Beijing put Chiang Kai-shek out of his misery. The reason why it's so confusing and contradictory in this instance is because there was an awful lot of plausible deniability underway in the style which Acheson went about making his speech. Acheson would have known that Walter Wagner's New York Times version of his speech was inaccurate, but since it enabled Acheson to supposedly stand for two different policies at once, 
he could see how Mao reacted, and then disown Wagoner's version later. What does become clear from the whole episode, confusing as it may be, is a subsequent criticism of the Korean aspect was not at all the most important thing on the agenda, and to Atchison, far more focused on the issue of Taiwan rather than South Korea, which at this stage he probably wasn't even thinking about, he would certainly be surprised to see this speech listed in the conventional accounts of the build-up to the Korean War. At that time, all that Atchison was really thinking was how to get China on side in this last-ditch effort. Far and away the most important part of his speech was the absence of Taiwan, and Atchison hoped that by putting forward his views in such a manner, he could intimate again to Mao that a trade-off could be arranged. At the same time, the interpretation of the speech and the New York Times' emphasis on America holding on to Taiwan could be used as an example of how passionately some Americans still felt about that island and about Chiang Kai-shek, and it could illustrate the extent to which America, or Atchison, or President Truman, was thus doing Mao a favour where Taiwan was concerned by essentially letting Taiwan go. In a sense, Atchison was saying that Mao Zedong's partnership was worth the negative press that the crushing of Taiwan would create for his government. Although he had acted with Taiwan in mind, what Atchison actually touched off was greater enthusiasm in North Korea of all places, and a simultaneous reaction in Stalin's mind to hurry his plans for that conflict along. Next time, guys, if you're still with us after all this content, we'll pick up our narrative from the perspective of the Sino-Soviet relations still going down in Moscow, and we'll examine once and for all how the groundbreaking alliances between Stalin and Mao were arranged. Until then, though, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to When Diplomacy Fails, more specifically, episode 11 of The Korean War. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 